So last week we started the, the book of 1 Peter, and of great concern to Peter and to his audience is this idea and experience of having souls, their souls saved. And we talked a little bit about that idea of, of having a saved soul is not just the, the spirit that departs from us and then we go to heaven when we die. That's, that's not really what he's talking about. What he's talking about is the salvation of the whole person, spiritual health, physical health, mental health, emotional health, the fulfilling of the experience as a human, also with the notion of eternal life that God promises to those who are of his family. And so today's passage identifies two paths that we as human beings generally pursue that are different than the path of God to pursue in terms of saving our own souls. Because all of us here, it, it, this is always of great concern to humanity, the, our, our own well-being, having a meaningful, satisfying, happy existence. But we don't choose the best way. And so there are really two prominent paths that guide us as human beings uh, outside of God's path. The first one, the text says, is our passions and our desires. We are following our passions and our, and our desires. Uh, these are part of the, the, the dead hopes that we talked about last week from that first passage. And I just want to go over a little bit about, uh, or just to describe a little bit, very familiar things, but where do our passions and our desires lead us? So I, I just want to look at a, a few um, areas in which we have given ourselves to these passions and, and desires. The first one uh, is, is greed and compulsive spending. Now, materialism seems to be a part of the challenges here in the, in the context of 1 Peter, um, but we know that greed and compulsive spending are very much a part of our own culture. Uh, one of the most authoritative books on this subject is, is called Affluenza. It's first published in 2005. It's in its third edition, and it states this. Addiction to stuff is not easily understood. It is a bubbling cauldron of such emotional states as anxiety, loneliness, and low self-esteem. And it quotes this woman named Leanne, who is an admitted shopaholic. And this woman, in, in 1996, and so the 2005 was the first edition, and so its, it's statistics and some of its quotes are kind of old, but in 1996, so almost 30 years ago, she was spending $20,000 a year on her own clothing. And she said this, I like to shop, excuse me, I like to think I shop because I don't want to look like everybody else. That's what she'd like to think about herself. But then she says this, Leanne confides anonymously, but the real reason is because I don't want to look like myself. It's easier to buy something new and feel good about yourself than it is to change yourself. We also know that substance abuse disorders are a significant way that our passions lead us down to destroying our own souls. And there's just one, one statistic that I want to share with you. So the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services in 2017, so in, in the year 2017, 19.7 million people in the United States over the age 12, so that's a little over 7% of the population, had a substance abuse disorder. 
It wasn't that they smoked once in a while or drank once in a while. These were, these were people addicted to some um, substance, and it was controlling their lives. So that was 2017. Four years later, 2021. So, you know, COVID had hit. 2021, it goes from 19.7 million to 46.3 million. Over the age of 12, 16.5% of the people in our country over the age of 12 well, of the population, excuse me, have a substance abuse disorder. That's one out of every six people. Again, that's not, they occasionally smoke, they occasionally do illicit drugs. This is people that are controlled by being addicted to substances. Sexual addictions, again, passions and desires, where do they lead us? Mayo Health System estimates that up to 8% of our country has a sexual addiction, uncontrollable sexual urges. That's 24 million people. 4.7 million people in the U.S., adults, spend more than 11 hours a week looking at pornography. So these are like the extreme examples of where our passions and our desires take us. It's one avenue of what Peter is describing that controls us and what ultimately destroys our souls. These aren't addressing the everyday things that a lot of us would like to change, gluttony, anger, laziness. These are all things, too, habits that we get into that, that uh, are, in some ways, destroying our souls. Peter also talks about what he calls the feudal way of your forefathers, or the, the text we read this morning, or this, excuse me, this evening, the feudal way of your ancestors. This is a way of referencing the, um, our culture and the social norms that exist that have a heavy influence on us. So historically, and which would have been the context for these people, the, those cultural norms, those social norms, there would have been lots of foreign uh, gods, lots of false religions that would appeal to passion. So if you wanted to improve, you know, the productivity of your farm, all right, so it's still a desire that you have, you would, you know, you would um, make vows and sacrifices and commitments to the, 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 the uh, I can't remember what the god of farming would be, but anyway, you get the idea. So in our times, we've thrown out the higher orders. So in older times, they identified a need based upon their desires. There was a God that intervened in those things. Our times, we've thrown out the gods, and we just go straight to the desires. That's what we do. We don't believe that through God we will find, or gods, we will find what we need to, to fulfill our desires. And the desires, we, we see that we ourselves, the, the pursuit is for us to experience wholeness and authenticity for us as an individual. So our feelings and our passions and desires are actually how we identify ourselves. This is me. What I long for to be fulfilled, that would fulfill me. They, the identity is wrapped up in, and our sense of self is wrapped up in, our feelings and desires. So the end result is the same. Whether we're controlled by passions and desires or whether it's the social cultural norms, ultimately it ends up in the same thing. Our passions, our desires, and our feelings are controlling us. Well, Peter, who is one of the closest disciples of Jesus, teaches this, that our passions and our desires are actually what's destroying our souls, and we know it, and that the way to have those souls saved is Jesus Christ. So how did he explains why? 
So this passage tonight begins with this word, therefore. So the teaching that he's got in this passage is dependent upon the passage that came before, which is what we spoke on last week. And so just real quickly, he says that you were born into a living hope. You were born into that living hope, and in that living hope, is the salvation of your souls. The, the full experience right here and now existentially on this earth and for eternity. What is hope? Well, hope is confidence in a future good. It's a well-grounded expectation that, that good is in my future. And it's, it's tied to faith. Again, this is a little bit of a review from last week. It's tied to faith. Faith is believing in something that promises future good. So faith actually comes first. I believe that XYZ is going to be the source of future good for me. So I put my hope, which is this energy and drive and affection, and for what I am believing is going to bring me good. We have faith in something, and then we put our hope in that, and that energizes us. And so what we put our hope in is what we believe is going to bring good to our lives. And Peter says, you have been born again into a living hope. A living hope is, is the promise of, of God saving our souls through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, when we're, when we're born... The Bible teaches, that, is, teaches us that we're born into iniquity and that we're born into sin. And then as we grow, we increasingly become enslaved to these passions and to the social and cultural norms that are around us. And then these things destroy us. So we, we develop lifestyles that are actually destroying our souls, which is why this passage today, there's a strong emphasis, be holy. And when we read the word holy, we kind of feel like, oh, that's a religious word. We don't really use it today. It just literally means set apart. It means different. If this way of life is killing you, stand aside from that way of life and live differently. So it's be holy. Live a life that isn't going to destroy you. Get away from those passions and desires. Get away from those social and cultural norms that are ultimately consuming you the problem is is that we just can't live differently see we, we are we are enslaved and we can't break free we we can't believe that god and following him will actually lead to good it's the original it's the original problem man and woman in the garden and the serpent telling the woman god isn't after your good Here's what you should pursue. And she listed off her passions and desires that she thought that eating that apple would fulfill. So we can't, we, we just don't believe that God is for our good and that his way of life is going to be good for us and save us. And so we, we put our hope in dead things, dead hopes. We believe that these things are going to bring good. We put our hope in these things that they're going to bring good but they bring death. So they're not living hopes, they're dead hopes. These things that I just mentioned a few here at the beginning. 
So I, I, I kind of want to get into uh, I, why can't we? Why can't we just live these holy lives and save ourselves? So I want to tell a little bit of a story. Most of us are, I'm assume, well, most of us are probably familiar with, with Victor Hugo's story, Les Mis. It's been made into a musical. The musical's been around for over 40 years. Uh, there's been movies made of it. And the musical and the movies tell the story relatively accurately. Okay, so the story takes place during the French Revolution. And so, you know, the French Revolution was this time of great upheaval where the lower classes were getting sick of the, the, the aristocracy, of, the, uh, of, the, oh, of the, the, the king and the, the royal family and the Catholic Church. And so there was this ground swelling of, of people against the elites. Okay, and so there's this man. He's the main character. His name is Jean Valjean. And he lives with his sister. The family is dirt poor, desperately poor. They, she has small children. Um, he steals a loaf of bread to feed his sister and the family. He's caught and sentenced to prison for five years for stealing a loaf of bread. He tries to escape a few times. So I think he's in prison for like 19 years. Upon his release, he can't find work because on his papers it says, you are a criminal. And he can't get a job. And so he, he kind of sneaks into this, um, this priest's house. It's the church, and then there's the, the priest has a house there. It's a bishop, actually. And so it's kind of this big compound. So he sneaks into this compound, and he, you know, he takes some food. But the, eventually the priest takes him in and starts to care for him. But one night, Jean Valjean sees that basically the only thing of value in this place is this set of silver. So that night he steals the silver but he's caught by the police. And so the police catch him, and Jean Valjean tells this story. He says, listen, I, I was staying at this priest's house. He's a really great priest, bishop, and he gave me these things. Well, the police, they don't believe him, so they run back. To, so the police take Jean Valjean back to the bishop's house, back to the church, and they say, hey, bishop, here's what this man has told us. Is it true? And the priest says, yes, I did give him this silver, the priest affirms the story. And then the police leave, and the priest says this. And this is what kind of made me think about this. Don't ever forget, he's, telling, he's talking to Jean Valjean, you have promised me to use this silver to become an honest man. I have bought your soul for God. Now, in the musical and in the movies, this is Jean Valjean's turning point. But it's not the original story. It's not what's in the book. In the book, Jean Valjean goes on his way. The, all that stuff about the priest is true. He goes, he's got the bag of silver, and he goes along the way, and he's troubled, and he's angry. Why did this man show me kindness? And he was angry because it was tormenting him. I didn't deserve kindness, but I got it. I feel like I owe this guy, but he gave these things. So he was troubled. And so he sits down on this bench, and this, this little boy comes by, 10 years old. He's a chimney sweep, dirt poor, and he just got done doing a job, and he's throwing some of his money into the air. And he drops the most valuable piece of silver next to Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean steps on it with his foot. And the boy sees it, and the boy goes up, hey, I want my money. 
Jean Valjean won't give him his money. He gets up and he threatens the little boy, get out of here. And the little boy runs off crying. And he remains there for a time, standing on this coin until it's nighttime. He's getting cold and he sits down and he realizes he's still stepping on this coin. And he's just overwhelmed at that moment. What have I done? So he starts looking for this boy. He can't find him. He wants to repay. He wants to make amends. He wants to not be that guy that stole the coin from the little boy who's 10. Somebody comes by. It's actually another priest. And he says, hey, have you seen this little boy? The priest says, no. He gives, him, he gives this priest some, some, some money. He says, hey, go help your poor people. And he says, are you sure you haven't seen this little boy? The priest says, no. He gives him some more money. He says, listen, have me arrested. I am a robber, he tells this guy. And the guy freaks out and runs away. He becomes more and more desperate, and he's breaking down. And he gets to this point where he says, I am a miserable man. And he cries for the first time in 19 years. And the text says that he saw himself for what he was, the hideous convict, Jean Valjean. And what happens at that moment then, he starts to see himself as somebody different. He starts to see himself as someone whose soul has been bought for God. And he says this light began to emerge and the person of Jean Valjean gets washed away in this brilliant light of him as a new creation, someone whose soul has been bought for God, and he's transformed. See, Peter says, you have been born again into a living hope. He says here, you have been ransomed. See, Jean Valjean really had become a hideous man. You know, he may have justified himself in stealing the bread to feed his poor family. He may have justified himself by stealing the silver from, you know, the French elite. He's a wealthy bishop. He's got everything he needs. They've been oppressing us for years. He may have justified himself as a victim of the oppressive French monarchy. But in the end, upon stealing a coin from a small poor boy, when he had a full bag of silver... He realized what he was, and he could no longer justify himself. He knew that he was a hideous convict. And he couldn't redeem or ransom himself. He couldn't pay the guy back, the boy back. And so Peter uses this word ransomed or redeemed in this text. It means the same thing. You have been bought and purchased for God. That's, I mean, that's the same message that Peter has here. And so the context is that, is that if slaves wanted to go free, there was a price set for their, for their redemption, and they would go and deposit money. They wouldn't give the money to the owner. They would go to the temple and put the money in the temple. The, there was a small commission paid to the owner of the slave, but the money was given to the god or the goddess of the temple, and then it was understood that ownership was transferred from the human owner to the God, to the deity. The, de- the deity now owned the slave. The slave would no longer have to, you know, follow the whims of a human master, but the slave was a slave of the God. The deity now owned the person. So that's some of the background to Peter's understanding here. So 
If we are enslaved to these passions, what are we enslaved to? What is it that is enslaving us? If Peter says, you have been bought by the precious blood of Christ, wait, well, so who owns this? If we're slaves, who is our slave master? So Peter will state that three things are our master. First of all, our own passions. Our own passions are our master, our physical bodies. Our physical bodies grow, and we increasingly become corrupted by sin, and our sin enslaves us to more sin. We are enslaved to our bodies, and it's physical and fleshly desires. He also says, and we, you know, we covered that earlier. We, he also says that we are enslaved to the feudal ways of our forefathers. We're enslaved to the culture and the social norms. You know, when we're born, we, immediately we are starting to be socialized and culturalized by, by our parents, by our peers, by our families. And depending on the quality of those social groups or the lack of quality of those social groups, that, well, that's going to determine the ways of our lives. But all social groups are going the path of their desires. Going the path of their desires. So we're enslaved to our physical bodies. We're enslaved to the culture. And in chapter 5, he's going to bring up what he calls the adversary, your adversary, the devil, who we gave our allegiance to when we sin. Our, our sin, and our, our, so our sins are transgressions against God and his right way. So if there's, a, if there's a holy way, if there's a set-apart way that brings, that brings life and doesn't end up in self-destructive behaviors and habits, then the opposite way is the way of the way of death. So when we sin, we are doing things in this way of death. So when we, and when we sin, it is an expression of following our adversary, the devil. Paul will say the same things in different ways. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Apostle John in his letters. The perspective of the Bible is that these three things are our slave masters. So we need, we need a fresh start. Like Jean Valjean needed a fresh start. Like ancient slaves and becoming free of their human masters. Which is why, you know, like, like this woman, Leanne, that I quoted at the beginning, she says, you know, I, I want to change myself. I can't do it, so I buy things that makes me feel like I'm changing myself. I mean, that's a statement. I, I need to be renewed. And so that's why Peter uses this phrase, born again. So by being born again, we have a new self. It's no longer our flesh that identifies us. We are now identified by Jesus Christ. We've been born again into a living hope. The Holy Spirit has come inside of us. I now have a new identity. The light of Jesus Christ has washed away the human flesh. We are born again, so that's the, you know, we're no longer enslaved to the flesh. We've been born again into a new way of life. 
We have been freed from the life directed to us by the culture and the social norms around us. We have been freed to live a holy life. And we've been born again. The devil is no longer our father. If you're familiar with some of the, the, uh, the admonitions that Jesus gave against the, um, the religious elite in Israel, he said that the devil is your father and you have been following him. So if we are in sin, no, not yet born again, our father is the devil. And so being born again, we have a new father. We have a new father that we're obligated to, which is why he says, you be holy for I am holy. Be obedient to the father as children. Well, what was the redemption price? If we've been ransomed, if we have been redeemed, there was a price that needed to be paid. The cost is our is our very lives. But just like Jean Valjean couldn't pay, he couldn't, he couldn't get rid of what he had done. He couldn't pay and give that coin back to that boy. We could not pay ourselves to be owed what was owed in order for us to be free. So how was it paid? Peter says, listen, God paid that price. God paid that price. And the price was the blood of his own son. It wasn't perishable things like gold and silver. It wasn't stuff that's going to rust. It wasn't going to things that, not things that decay, not things that fade, not things that get worse as time goes on. The imperishable blood, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. If we owed our lives, a life was due. And so God paid a life, the life of his own son. And then Jesus rose, rose from the dead. It was a proving, proving that we have a living hope. If, if Jesus would have died and stayed dead, what hope is that for any of us? We would just die and stay dead. What has God born us into if he doesn't have power over death? Well, God is saving souls. Our physical life on this earth and calling us to believe in Christ and have a living hope of the gospel and then to live a holy life that saves us from lives of self-destruction. If Jesus had not resurrected from the dead, we don't have a living hope. But because he rose from the dead, we have the promise that death and sin and self-destruction are no longer the masters. It was God's absolute verification that he was the new owner, that he was the new father. That's what the resurrection of the dead is. Now, what about the boy? How does the boy, how does the boy get repaid? How, how do people get repaid that we've sinned against? Because, okay, God has forgiven us through Jesus Christ, but what about all these people we sin against? All of us, are hideous convicts. And anybody that stands in judgment of anybody else, and this is really one of the hard truths and I think one of the most amazing and beautiful truths of the gospel, is that none of us can sit in judgment of another as an impartial judge because we are all hideous convicts and human beings. Or as the, the writer of Ecclesiastes said from our last series, we are all beasts. 
and we are not able to sit in judgment of each other because we've all done the same things. We should try to make amends, but the amends don't save our souls. It is God who saves our souls. So we're all in a place of striving to save our souls. Our passions and the culture and the social norms are waging a war against us. And we often recognize that we need to, to be something different if we're going to save our souls and overcome this world and overcome our own flesh. So we try. But again, if we don't have that, if, if we don't understand and believe that we have, that we are a new creation, that we have been born again, we won't change. We will not be able to muster up enough determination. See, he doesn't give this command. With minds that are alert and fully sober, be holy. He doesn't give that command at the beginning of the book. He gives that command after he's explained. You've been born again into a living hope, and because of that, you can now be holy. Without the gospel, you can't be holy. The gospel comes first, recognizing that we need to be born again, recognizing that we need somebody to save us and that we can't save ourselves. For those, so, so for those of us who have believed in the gospel and are children of God, but are struggling against passions and desires in the world around us and we can't change, what then is the problem? Well, Peter would say that you have your minds set on dead hopes. If you have your mind set on a living hope, and it takes, I mean, the idea is it's gird, your, gird the loins of your mind is literally what that phrase says. It's we roll up your shirt sleeves and get ready to work. It is a, an aggressive, difficult battle to be in this process of mind renewal that sets us on the path of holiness. So if we're not experiencing that as Christians, it's because we do not have engaged minds set on the living hope. We have engaged minds set on dead hopes. And Christians that have minds set on dead hopes will find themselves controlled by passions and the culture just like those who don't know Jesus. And for those who have not believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and are struggling to build a life that's meaningful and satisfying where you, where you are free from things that enslave you, you know, if you can identify with that woman, Leanne, I'd like to be somebody different. I keep trying all these things differently, but I can't seem to change. And contrary to our, our current cultural moment, living for your passions isn't going to make the difference. It's your passions that are destroying you. Your feelings and your passions didn't create you. You didn't create yourself. You have a creator. And that's really what father means. Father, you know, we have, a, we have human fathers, but a father literally just means that which, it's the, he's the source. All things are coming from him. The begotten son, the idea of the son is that Christ comes forth as the visible and audible expression of God. It's something that comes out of. And what he comes out of, what Jesus comes out of, is the Father who is invisible. But it is God who creates. Everything comes from God. You come from God. 
and you're looking for a new sense of identity. And, what, and that, that longing that you have for that is from God. You're looking for your true identity, but it's not going to be found in yourself. It's going to be found in God who created you. And it's the Father that gave you life, and, and he's now offering eternal life, saved souls here on this earth and for the future, for eternity, through the living hope of Jesus Christ. Let me pray real quick.